turn to Matthew chapter 9. I'd have to say I had a pretty interesting week last week. Uh, so Saturday, it was just a nice mild 95 degrees here in Waco. I mean, mild compared to yesterday at 106. I mean, it, it seemed cool, right? So I'm wearing my shorts, my t-shirt, and I make my way, get on the plane. And it was a real good thing that Karina had made me check the weather uh, right before we left here. But uh, I was not quite expecting you know, like in the 50s, raining cold, I felt like I had emerged into like winter at Texas. Okay, I was cold. I was like I'm totally unprepared for this. You know, all the people in Chicago, they're wearing their coats and they got their umbrella here. And I'm, I'm looking like I came right from central Texas, which I did, you know. And so it was a it was really a very great week. Um, obviously, it was a real honor for us to be one of 10 churches invited to come and have discussions on evangelism and discipleship. But I'd, I'd have to say that what was most intriguing, what was most amazing about the week was not necessarily what took place during the week, but my flights to and from Chicago. Just based on my experiences on these different airplanes, I'm drawing a conclusion that God is is mighty at work and he's he's moving in people's hearts and people want to know truth and reality and they'd really like to know how you can have a relationship with God. When I was flying from Dallas to Chicago, I was sitting next to a, a financial investment lawyer. Uh, he was from Egypt. He works in international business. He had visited family in Fort Worth. He was making his way back to Dubai where he lives. And so uh, I'm talking with him. Finds out that he had been a judge in Egypt, but because he's a Coptic Christian, there was a lot of heat from all the Muslims, and he told me I, I got out just in time. And so when I talked with him and asked him, like, how do you become a Christian? He had really no idea how you became a Christian, but he himself knew quite a bit about Jesus and he knew about a little bit about the Bible, but he referenced a book like Ephesians. He'd never even heard of it before, and yet he understood the fall. And, and he, was, he was curious and interested to know how indeed you did become a Christian because he thought, well, I, I'm, I was born a Christian. I, isn't that how you become a Christian? I said, what if you weren't born one? He's like, ah, I don't know. And he was, So we had an opportunity to just kind of walk through what is it? mean to truly enter into relationship with God. And then kind of on our flight back, this is really interesting. So uh, we got these, I, I'm, I'm in row 10, Matt's in row 9. We, we've got the middle seats in each section. I think uh, when they got slated there, the idea is that you know, no one would want to sit by us, right? Or something like that. Well, anyway, Matt's there in row 9, and he's engaging with a guy who has no spiritual background, but rather interested. He married a Catholic gal, and so he's got some questions. So Matt's discussing with this guy for a while, and then eventually this lady sitting on his right, uh, she is a self-proclaimed agnostic. But she's got questions for Matt, okay? So that's what's going on in row 9. Row 10... Uh, I'm sitting there, and I, I'm next to a Whirlpool sales rep, okay? Now, it just so happened that our dryer died, okay, right before I leave for the trip. I had done some research, and we had to make a purchase, right? I mean, you know, we got six in our family, four kids, going to camp, all these clothes. So I had to make a purchase, did some research, and we ended up actually buying a Whirlpool. So I actually had some data about his company and, and his, his machines, and so we're, I'm exhausting my knowledge about Whirlpool appliances right there in row 10. And we're talking for a while. He'd asked me earlier what I did, and that's always like, when you say a pastor, you just, I mean, all sorts of different responses. Some of them rather peculiar happen when you say that. But he then said, you know, enough of talking about what I do. He says, I, I've got some questions for you. He said, there is something drastically missing in my life. And he went on to tell me that he'd been raised as an Episcopal, uh, in a Episcopal church, but he'd spent the last 25 years out of it, and he'd come to the conclusion something's drastically missing 
And he wanted to ask questions about God and how do you really have a relationship with him. Well, I finished going through this line diagram presentation of the gospel. You're in the middle seat, right? And you got to, I mean, yeah, this is cattle class, right? This is in first class. So, I mean, literally, you're just sitting right here and you're doing this sort of thing. Well, I have a lady sitting on my side and she's kind of watching this. And she, after I finish this, she starts asking me questions. Turns out that she's Jewish and her husband teaches at a synagogue and she wants to know, how really do we know that it's Jesus is the way? And so, friends, God is at work. People are realizing that life apart from God and not knowing Jesus Christ leads to emptiness and despair. And people are asking questions. Specifically, they're asking how we can know with certainty that relationship with God is truly made possible through Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because the world is asking. People would like to know the answers. And God has revealed everything we need to know in this book. That is why Matthew chapter 9 is so critically important that every Christian have a real strong handle on this text. Because it literally answers that question, how we can know with certainty that relationship with God is found by trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus does something pretty radical here. It's in Matthew chapter 9. You remember he had actually called Matthew the tax collector, okay? Like the pariah of society. And he actually called Matthew to come follow him. And Matthew's life is so revolutionized by Jesus Christ that he throws this party and he invites all these prostitutes and tax collectors and the riffraff of society to come and interact with Jesus. And he throws this feast. Well, this was upsetting to the Pharisees. And it was also upsetting to another group. And you can actually find them as we come into verse 14. In verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist. Remember, John was proclaiming the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, those are the very first public words that Jesus utters as well. Repent, turn 180 degrees, literally turn from your sin and repent and, tr- and trust in the Messiah. There is kingdom of heaven. The king is here. Now, these men believe that message. And part of John's message was to repent. And one of the signs of repentance is that you actually fasted. You literally went without food as a sign of mourning, of brokenness, of repentance. Now, the Pharisees were also people that, that fasted. In fact, the Pharisees fasted on every Monday and every Thursday. They fasted twice a day, even though the law only said that you only needed to fast once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the one day that there was a fast that was required. But if you were in time of national brokenness, you were being invaded, you yourself were going through great pain or anguish, you truly were repenting of sin that you were involved in, you would fast. Well, the Pharisees were fasting about twice a week at this point. John's disciples were fasting, and they were trying to figure out why in the world Jesus And his men were not. In fact, these disciples of John come to him and approach him and say, but your disciples do not fast. Something's wrong here. If you're truly holy, then you've got to be following these traditions. And, And notice they approach and say, your disciples. You see, a teacher was assumed to be responsible for his behavior of his disciples. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, you got some good things you're teaching. John is pointing to you and saying that you're the Messiah, but... You're not lining up with how we think things should work. We think that people should be uh, 
fasting like we are, and you and your disciples at this very present time, you're feasting. You're doing the exact opposite. What's going on? And so what Jesus is about to do is he is going to clearly make known his identity. He's going to reveal that he indeed is the promised Messiah. And because he is the, the fulfillment of all the promises made of Messiah in the living flesh, life is going to be different because he is bringing in the new covenant. The old ways and the old covenant will, can no longer be imposed upon Jesus and his followers because he is now the, the, the one who is going to bring forth those who will live in relationship with God by believing in him. And so he's, he goes on to say, Listen, let me tell you what's going on. Verse 15. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? Now, he's what he's saying is saying, you know, the promises of this coming one. And there were metaphors used of a of a wedding feast. And Jesus, this was his most a very common metaphor referring to him as the bridegroom collecting a bride of people for himself. He says, I'm that guy. I am the bridegroom. And the bridegroom, while he is here, the attendants of the bridegroom, all the people in the wedding party, they cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? And what he's doing is he's bringing to mind something that's very common to theirs. He's saying, you know how when you go to a wedding, a Jewish wedding lasted for seven days. You could do no hard labor, uh, you couldn't even mourn during a wedding feast. It was a time of celebrating the bride and the bridegroom. And what he's saying is, I am that bridegroom promised in the Old Testament. And the reason that my men and I are not fasting but are feasting is because I am here. And he says, just like you know from that wedding, and he says, let me tell you, there will be a day, though, when my men and my people will start to fast. And he says in verse 15, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And when he says taken away, he's speaking of uh, there will be a time where I'll be violently snatched away, captured. It's actually a reference to Isaiah 53 in verse eight, where he actually uses the exact same phrasing that there'll be a time of judgment and oppression where Messiah will be taken away. And Jesus is once again prophesying about what is going to happen to him. He is truly going to be ripped away and he's going to be brought forth in judgment. And that day, then the people in the wedding party are going to start to fast and mourn. But while I am with them, there's going to be great rejoicing. So they're they're trying to put this all together here. The Pharisees, John's disciples, Jesus is clearly making himself known. I am the promised Messiah. He can see that they're not getting this. And so he actually gives them a couple of illustrations. Verse 16, he says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Now, what would happen? Clothes were made out of wool and linen. OK, and when you wash them, what happens when you wash wool and linen? It shrinks, right? And so what he's saying there is you if you got a hole you're not going to take a patch, a patch of unshrunk cloth, and if you sew that onto there, what's going to happen? When that patch shrinks, well, that's going to make even a bigger hole. And he says, my kingdom, the new covenant, the people in it, 
They are not going to be able to be imposed on the old traditions and in the old covenant. I am doing something completely new. You can't put an old you can't put a new patch on some old garments without making it all worse. And then he says, let me tell you another illustration. Verse 17. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. And what they do is they get the skin of like a goat. OK, they sew it all up and then they would put wine, unfermented wine in there. And the, what would happen is that wine fermented. It caused that skin to expand. OK, there's some elasticity in there. But once that skin had reached its maximum point of elasticity, you would never, after you emptied out all the wine, pour some more new wine in there and have that ferment. Because as soon as you did that, that wine skin would rupture and burst and you'd lose it all. You'd lose your wine skin and you'd lose all your wine. And what Jesus is saying is the new wine of my kingdom has come. And you can't put it into the old wine skins of the mosaic traditions because I am establishing the new covenant. I am the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, in the New Covenant, there is going to be a forgiveness of sins that is going to be offered to a people because Messiah himself will actually pay the penalty for sins. And the other promise of the New Covenant is that God is going to transform individuals from within. See, society, religions, they try to modify people's behavior. It's oftentimes an external working The new covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ is an internal transformation. You believe upon in Christ. God actually places his spirit in your life and changes you from the inside out. It is supernatural. It defies description and full explanation. And yet that is the reality for those who believe in Christ and by doing so have entered into his kingdom. Well, now, these are some pretty substantial claims. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I am the fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah given in the Old Testament. Now, don't mistake me. Jesus isn't saying, hey, we're doing away with the law. It has no use. Actually, what did Jesus have to say? Matthew chapter five. He said what? I am going to fulfill all the law. Everything the law requires, it will be fulfilled in me. And let me just tell you theologically what's happening, because Jesus perfectly fulfills all of the law's demands. He is completely righteous. And when you and I believe upon Christ, he can actually give us his righteousness. It is actually bestowed on our life, on our account. And he, in the same sense, actually has our sin transferred to him in which he pays. And so he is the fulfillment of the law. He's not doing away with it. In fact, he preserves it by fulfilling it. But what he is saying is what I'm doing is completely new and will not fit into the Old Testament forms and the Old Covenant. Well, those disciples of John the Baptist, these Pharisees, they're the one. To make these claims, you better be able to back them up. How in the world are we going to know for certain that you're not just giving us a line of rhetoric? That you just don't know some of the, the details of prophecies and what's spoken of Messiah and you're trying to do things. Because, by the way, when I was talking with Lisa, my, my Jewish friend on the right hand side, that was her argument. Jesus just happened to know the Old Testament well enough to try to fulfill these different signs of what Messiah would do and what he would say. And I said, well, some of those things that Jesus did simply could not be planned. How do you and I know that Jesus is really God and he really is the Messiah? Well, just take a look at what happens. 
Well, there's this discussion going on. Verse 18, Jesus is now going to substantiate his claim as Lord of all creation. And he does so in real time in the midst of real pain. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, don't just take that real lightly, what just happened here. Synagogue official. Luke and Mark record this exact same incident. They actually give us a little bit more information. He's not just a synagogue official in Capernaum. He is the head dog. He is the chief guy. He is the chief synagogue official. That means he's over all of the teaching. He makes sure about the school running. He makes sure that people are following the law, all of the disbursement of the alms, the keeping of the scrolls, the teaching, everything that is to take place in the synagogue and in the lives of the Jewish people. He is the guy in charge of it. And the Pharisees, we already see, they have a deep-seated animosity already taking root in their life toward Jesus. And yet this man, and we know from Luke and Mark, this is his only daughter. She is 12 years old. And she has just died. Now, we don't know exactly where Jairus, Jairus, that was his name, whether he was in full league with the people, the Pharisees and the synagogue officials that wanted to kill Jesus. Likely he was, but we don't know for certain. But one thing we do know, once the pain and anguish of death enters into his life, once he faces hardships and reality, And he realizes how much he needs God and his life. All of those things take a back seat. By the way, that's how it works in life. Your hardships and your difficulties, pain, anguish, your hurt. This is meant to drive us to Christ. It is meant to break down whatever little facades and arguments that you have. Why why I'm not going to believe in Jesus To bring you to your knees so that you will truly come to Jesus, who is the Messiah. And let me tell you, from firsthand experience, you can take some heat for doing so. For all of you who have come to Christ a little bit later in life, and you've experienced the pleasantries of families ridiculing you or mocking you or laughing at you, or business associates going, you're a what? You're, You're a Christian? What? What are you doing? Or kids at school or classmates or fellow students at the university going, Christianity is not for the educated. What are you thinking? You become a Christian, you wreck your career. What do you You face that kind of hurt and heat and animosity? Certainly the synagogue official knew what was coming. I mean, after all, he's truly embracing Jesus, the Messiah. That is not the party line. There's some driving hurt. He sees the need. He seems to understand who Jesus is. In fact, he makes this request. He says, my daughter has just died, but you come lay your hand on her. Do you know what that meant? A Jewish rabbi would never touch a dead person. To do so, anybody that touched someone who had just died, that meant that you were unclean for seven days. Jewish teachers, synagogue officials, rabbis, they never touched a dead person. This man is saying, I want you to... Enter into my life and touch my daughter, and I know that she will be made well. Because even though the law says you will be unclean, you are greater than the law. You're the fulfillment, and you could bring life to my daughter. Now, up until this point, all we have seen is Jesus working with people who are alive. 
Now we have a man who literally, notice what he does, he bows down, he falls prostrate before Jesus. This is what you do before God, for a, before a superior, a great king. So will you touch my daughter, and if you do, she will live. In verse 19, Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. This man had such great faith that Jesus could bring back his dead daughter to life, that he came to Jesus to bring him to his home. Well, here you've got to imagine the scene. I mean, people were just flocking from everywhere to get a glimpse of Jesus. He is making waves. The people, he's the talk of the town, the region. People are coming from all over to see him. And now Jairus has lost his daughter. His daughter is dead. And now he's taking Jesus. But now there's a crowd in front of them. It's kind of like imagine a modern day ambulance in a city just packed with people. And there's all sorts of chaos. And you're trying to get the ambulance to where it needs to be. But there's just all this traffic blocking. Well, that's what's happening. There's people everywhere. It's not that they're trying to be in the way. It's just they want to see Jesus. They'd like to touch him. There are a lot of folks that were just kind of curious about Jesus. Because in many respects, Jesus was an attraction. I mean, you never knew what he's going to do next. Heal someone, cast out a demon, call a, call a tax collector to follow him, hang out at his house, have a party. He was just beyond description. He didn't fit any of their definitions. And then, while they're in this midst, this crowd, you could see Jairus kind of pulling Jesus, Jesus walking, his disciples, people just coming out to touch him. Oh, there's Jesus. Little, little children kind of standing there trying to see him because it's like a parade and they're making their way to the synagogue official's house. And in the midst of this, there is a woman who is untouchable in the midst. She shouldn't have been there, but there she is in verse 20. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe. Literally, it's the the tassel fringe of his cloak. And she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Now, this woman, we we don't know her name. We do know that she should have never been there. You see, a woman with, she probably had a, a uterine hemorrhage for 12 years. That meant that she was perpetually unclean. She could have never gone to a synagogue. Her family would never touch her. Uh, if she had been married, she was now divorced because it was very easy to divorce your wife. You find anything you don't like about your wife and the and the, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, had it figured out how you could divorce her. You just, you're gone. And he'd be free to go marry someone else. Jesus is going to take that head on. You just keep sticking with him as we go through this gospel. She had been married. She's now divorced. And if she was not married, she was never going to be married. She was anemic. She was weak. She lived in a perpetual state of uncleanness. That meant anybody that touched her or anybody that she touched became unclean until the evening. She needs to be outside of society, not in the group. But she has a faith in Jesus. And she keeps saying to herself, you see that in verse 21? If I only touch his garment, I will get well. She just keeps saying this over and over. I believe that this one can make me well. Well, She's in this midst here. She touches the fringe of his cloak and immediately Jesus then recognizes her. Look at this. Verse 22. But Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take 
courage. Do you see the love in his in his words? He calls her daughter. One in my family. It's a word of love. She probably hadn't heard things like this in a long, long time. Daughter, he says, take courage. Have faith. Your faith has made you well. And at once this woman was made well. She must have sensed it immediately in her body. Just she sensed that she was free. She was clean. She was healed. She was well. And when Jesus says your faith has made you well, literally saying your faith has saved you. It's the same word that we'd use for someone who had been saved from their sins. It's like she's entered into relationship with Jesus by believing. And not only she experienced the physical healing that she so desired, but she experienced the wellness of a soul that only comes by being touched by Jesus. And this woman is restored as Jesus just calls her out and says, my daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Whoa. You know, this woman who now stands in her midst, she is clean. You can just see her rejoicing. But remember, you have Jairus and he's weeping because his daughter is dead. and He's trying to get Jesus. And, and yes, this is good that this woman is clean now. And certainly Jairus wouldn't be aware that this one has been outside the synagogue now for many years, for 12 years. And that's great. My daughter's dead. Come on, Jesus, please, please just come. And so they make their way. And verse 23, and when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. Let me just give you a little bit of background of what funerals look like in Judaism. When someone died, their body would be washed and they would be buried that day. Okay, that's how it worked. But immediately what you would do, even if you were the poorest of the poor, you would hire uh, a wailing woman, a woman who would cry out and she would cry out the name of the deceased and she would wail and she would groan and she would intermix this wailing with other deceased family members. And she was a verbal, visual expression of grief and anguish of soul. She would be calling and crying out. The Jewish people also had 39 different ways you would rend and tear your garment. OK, they had all these traditions of what you would do in terms of your proximity to the one who died and where you tore your clothes. And so you would have people with torn clothes. You obviously have people in, in obvious grief, but you had professional mourners. And this woman would be crying out and she'd be wailing. She'd using the name of this girl as well as other relatives who had passed away. And then you always hired flute players. And even for the poorest, uh, it was recorded that you'd hire at least two. And so there would be flute players, and they were playing cute little, little tunes like that, okay? They would play tones of dissonance and discord to represent the pain and the anguish that grief causes. And so there is this, this moaning and crying. Now, a synagogue official, whoa, this is one of the most important people in the whole city. There would have been a lot of wailing women, probably lots of flute players, lots of people crying out, mourning, showing signs of respect for the man who's just lost his daughter. And Jesus, you could probably, as they're making this way, you could hear the crying and the wailing and the, and the flute playing and the discord. And as Jesus then makes his way, his very first words to this group are, look what he says, leave. You see that? Jesus comes, flute players, noisy disorder. Verse 24, he said, leave. What? For the girl has not died but is asleep. And they immediately, they began laughing at him. Okay, obviously they could turn it on. 
turn it off. I mean, these, these people, they made uh, perhaps some of their living, if not all of the living, these women, professional mourners. Oh, go, someone died, here we go. And they could turn it on. Grief, cry out, what are the names of some of the relatives? They get that all woven in. When Jesus says, leave, this girl is asleep. He's using a euphemism for death, but what he's saying is, she's not permanently dead because I am here. Leave. And they laugh, and this is kind of the, the guttural laugh of someone who you just like, you're mocking, you feel superior to. <laughs> what are you, who in the world are you? And they just, they went from grief, crying, wailing, to laughing instantly after Jesus says, leave. This girl isn't dead, but she's asleep. Well, they're, they're in unbelief. I would imagine that the synagogue official, Jairus, is, it's like, what? I mean, this is the tradition. We've always done this. And I'm the master of tradition. We, we have to be doing this. And yet, what, what are you saying? Well, he clears them all out. And notice what happens here. Verse 25. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand. And the girl got up. Jesus touches this girl. You would never do that. Because... This girl's dead. You're a rabbi. You would never touch. He touches. Mark records. He says the words, Talitha kum, little girl, I say, arise. Can't you just picture it? Jesus, the author of life, the creator of faith, he utters these words. They hit ears that simply are no, can no longer hear. And yet he has the power of life. He says it. All of a sudden, her eyelids start to flutter as she starts to focus. The first face that she sees is that of Jesus. And then she looks and she sees the weeping of her parents as they're right there by her side. Then these disciples that came in, the three that were there, looking and like, whoa, who is this? And literally, he brings her up and she is made alive. And what Jesus has done He authenticated the world. He has the power even over death. This is this is not only forecasting what he'll do, like in someone's life, like by the name of Lazarus. But it is further proof that he has the power over death and it pictures what he will do when he himself will be crucified, dead and buried and will rise again. You see, Jesus has authenticated to the world. He Indeed, is God, and he has the power for life. Now, this is pretty heavy-duty stuff. Can you imagine what happens when they, they present this little girl alive, the professional mourners, all the people that have been gathered to come and weep? Well, there's, there's some other event that's going to take place here that you have to see. You see, Matthew is recording just how it takes place in history, and now he's going to show, yes, Indeed, Jesus is showing that he is God. One thing, it has to be crystal clear. It has to be crystal clear. He's Messiah. Look at this. They actually, right after this, the, after he leaves there and uh, he leaves, the woman is made well. He leaves this, this house. The news is spreading. You see this in verse 26. The news spread throughout all the land. And Jesus went on from there. So you see, people are just talking. This Jesus he can raise the dead. He has the power for life. And Jesus goes out from there. And now the crowd, I imagine, is just, swell, just, just swelling. 
And there are two blind men. You see this in verse 27? They followed him and they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Does that ring a bell? If you've been on our journey, that was actually Matthew 1, verse 1, to show that Jesus is the son of God, the promised Messiah. The son of David, to say the son of David, that was the term that you would use to refer to the promised Messiah. Now, most of the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah that would be a military, political conqueror. They were expecting someone from the line of David who's going to come in and they were just going to wreak havoc on Rome, kick them out and establish the kingdom like it happened in David's time. They had the promise from 2 Samuel 7 that they would have a king that would reign forever. They expected a military conqueror. But they'd never understood that all these passages, like especially in Isaiah, that spoke of Messiah, who would bring about healing, was also the one same man. They kind of just ignored those. They really focused on the political military because they wanted power and might. And Jesus is the military power might conquer because he is going to come and he's going to do that. But he wants people to believe in him as the one who's paid for their sins. And critical to that is understanding that he is Messiah. When these these blind men call out that have mercy on a son of David, they are literally saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Will you have mercy on us? Now, these two guys, we don't know how long they had been blind. Blindness was pretty common, by the way. Uh, there, you could get it blind from injury, sand. Many children were actually born blind because of diseases their mothers had. It was very prevalent. These two men, blind men, probably trying to make their way. They're with the crowd. They somehow actually make it to the place where Jesus is because in verse 28, they're crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I really am the Messiah, the son of David, that I can do a miracle to authenticate that? Namely, take your blindness and make you see. Do you believe this? And they said, yes, Lord. They acknowledge him as God. And so really, it's it's all back on the table again. Jesus, are you really God? Are you really the promised Messiah? Can you really do this? And verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. Now, an amazing miracle. These blind men now can see. They're like, hallelujah, son of David. This would have been very upsetting to the Pharisees, but what could they do? Another miracle just taken place. I mean, Jesus is going from one miracle to another. And these aren't like small little things like healing someone from a headache or something like this. This is taking a dead person and making them alive. Blind men making them see. And they're calling him the son of David, the Messiah. And then Jesus says something that I'd, I'd imagine you find puzzling. I have at uh, different times found this to be very puzzling. Why does Jesus sternly, you see that verse 30, warns them, see that no one knows about this. Now, the reason I believe that Jesus does this is because he came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. His primary work was not that of a miracle worker to just do miracles, but rather he is doing to do the work that accomplishes salvation. He's going to do the work of the Redeemer. He has come to pay the penalty for men's sins. He is drawing people to himself. And you know why he did miracles? 
He didn't do miracles just merely to attract people and people go, wow, that is cool. No one's ever done that before. He does miracles to authenticate that he indeed is the Messiah and that his message is true. But Jesus wants people to what? To repent, to turn from their sins and to trust in him. And to have people running around and saying, whoa, Jesus is going to is just doing miracles, gets people attracted to just Jesus, the miracle worker, when indeed he wants them focused on himself as the Messiah who will deliver them from their sins. And you trust me. Now, it's really interesting. Jesus makes it real clear. I don't want you running around telling people about this. And what do they do? Verse 31. And they went out and did exactly the opposite of Jesus told them. They spread the news about him throughout all that land. Let me just give you a little aside. We, we believe that if, if people, just everyone becomes Christian, if they truly believe in Christ, that all the problems will be solved, right? That is actually not true. You can believe in Jesus. He can do miracle in your life. You can know that he's the Messiah. You can call him the son of David. But you must also obey him. You see, these men probably thought, well, Jesus, don't say that. We know more than you. We, we have good intentions and let us just take it over from here. And what they did is they disobeyed Jesus. You know, that's what God wants. He wants us not only to believe. He wants us to obey. He wants us to truly trust in him. But he wants us to take him at his word. You remember when that woman who had the, the hemorrhage that touched just the fringe of his cloak? They, there were these four tassels that were on this garment that Jewish men wore. And those tassels were, were told, given to them by God. God said, I want you to put four tassels on your garments. They want, I want them blue. And they are to remind you to always obey my word. To do exactly what I say. You, I don't care what you think. I want you to do as I've asked you. And these men, even though they had seen, experienced all the goodness of God, they disregarded him. And what it did is it made matters more difficult for Jesus to accomplish his mission. His mission of drawing people to himself as Messiah. Miracles were merely to authenticate who he is. Well, after that then, they, were, they brought to him another person. And just by the way, do you know how many rec- rec- the records there are of people that have been healed of blindness in the Old Testament or in Judaism as a whole before the time of Jesus? Not only have been people, people have been healed of blindness? Zero. This was something that Messiah would do. Isaiah 35. He would make the blind to see. It had never happened. Not, no prophet, not Elijah, not Elisha. Only Messiah and Jesus does it. Well, they bring this other guy here. Look at verse 32. They were going out and a mute, a person who couldn't speak. This word means that he either couldn't hear or he couldn't speak or both. And he was also demon possessed. Now, not all people, obviously, that are mute or can't hear are demon possessed. Jesus heals others that are not demon possessed. But in this case, there seems to be a widespread manifestation of demons at the time of Jesus. This is the first encounter we have of this. This demon was responsible for this man's terrible condition. And they bring this man to him. And verse 33, after the demon was cast out, the mute man began, spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. 
This is another just mighty miracle to once again affirm that Jesus Christ, Jesus truly is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. So let me just read to you a couple of verses from Isaiah. It says this about Messiah, that the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Who does this? Who's the only one that has ever done this? Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah. And this is just merely a foretaste of what is to come in his kingdom. Well, there'll be no blindness, no sickness, no cancer, no disease. People will walk. There'll be no paralyzed people. People will know the joy of the Messiah. But he wants us to believe in him now. To trust in him utterly and completely. And he's done everything we need to show that indeed he is the Messiah. Now, this is not sitting well with a particular group of people. In fact, you can find them there in verse 34. The Pharisees were saying, we don't buy it. Look at this. They were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Whoa, that's pretty gripping and pretty alarming. You see, in Scripture, Satan is always showing himself to be the one who imitates God. Okay, he wanted to be God, wanted to be like God. And so he can't, so he would imitate. Okay, you find that in the Old Testament. You read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you're going to find out just how good of an imitator he can be. He actually even establishes his own imitation trinity. But he, what the Pharisees are saying is, all right, obviously Jesus is doing some pretty serious miracles here, and that is an understatement, and we know how he's doing it. He's not one of us. He must be doing it because he's in league with Satan himself. That's why the demons obey him, because somehow he's in league with Satan. That is our answer. And we set ourselves opposed to Jesus. And really, these responses that we see here in this text, those are kind of the responses people have toward Jesus. You know, some people are just amazed and curious. Maybe you're one of them. You're like, whoa, that's pretty amazing. Wow. Cool. Jesus, healing blind, raising dead people. Wow. Interested, curious. Doesn't change my life one iota, but I'm interested in that. There are a lot of people like that. There are some people that are antagonistic and caustic toward Jesus, like the Pharisees. I'm sure you've met some people like that. They like to use Jesus' name just in vulgarity, right? And they think you are a complete fool to believe in him. They don't like him. They hate him. They're mad at God. They want nothing to do with him. They call themselves atheists, agnostic, whatever. But they want life on their own. They want to live apart from the creator. There's a lot of people like that. Pharisees are like that. Religious people can be like that. Because Jesus made exclusive claims and said, I am the way. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. But there's another group of people. And that is those who are assured and they are committed. They are absolutely convinced that he is Lord. They believe everything that God has revealed about himself in the word and about Jesus, and they experience his life. I can't fully explain it. It's that God draws us to himself, and maybe you're at this point right now where you truly sense, I see, I'm aware of my sin, I I get it, and I'm trusting Christ. We're the group here that lives in a life that we're absolutely assured. You can call us whatever you want. You can mock us, you can ridicule us, it doesn't really matter. 
Because we know whom we believe and we know that he is alive and we are committed to him throughout our life, no matter what comes. Even when we face difficulty, our hardship, our cancer, our our pain, that person that passed away in our life, even when life doesn't make sense, we always fall back to what we do know. We do know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is loving and that he's good and there is life in his name and we believe. And so for the questions that are being asked, 35,000 feet in the air, do you know that they are answered in the Bible that you hold in your hand? You see, genuine spiritual life comes from truly knowing Jesus as Lord, as God, as Messiah. Believe in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. To see the claims of Jesus, to say that indeed he's the Messiah, the fulfillment of the new covenant. He is the bridegroom and he is drawing a people to himself. And to see those claims substantiated by these miracles. Lord, we confess that we believe. And if there is someone who has come today who has never put their trust and faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know about me and self-centeredness, doing it on my own, my sin. I turn from it right now and I trust in Jesus, the Messiah. I believe because you've given me the faith. And so, Father, fill me with your life. May I be a representation of your likeness and your love to the people in my life all the rest of my days. And for all of us, Lord, would you fill in us a great faith in him who is the conqueror of life, death, the one who brings about hope and peace that Satan simply cannot thwart because indeed he's the eternal king. Fill us with a joy and confidence in him. We ask this, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.